Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal RX. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello and welcome to our second podcast episode for 2022. Julianne and I are very happy to be here today to speak about the pertinent topic of post-viral syndrome. Now, alongside our work for Optimal RX, Julianne and I are both naturopaths in private practice, where we see lots and lots of patients with chronic and complex inflammatory and immune conditions. We both really sit in that space. So both you and I, Julianne, are working with these types of patients and we're noticing an increasing number of patients that are presenting with post-viral syndrome in our clinical practice. And I also believe we're not alone in this as we've noticed as well that there are an increasing number of queries and emails that come through to our tech support team at Optimal RX with questions from practitioners about their patients that are suffering with post-viral syndrome. And as it seems to be an increasingly common presentation, there's also more and more research being conducted in this area. So considering the the prevalence of the issue and our clinical experience and interest in this area, we thought it'd be a great idea to try and break down post-viral syndrome, talk about what it is, what exactly is going on, and how we can better support our patients, particularly with phytomedicines. So I guess the first thing to talk about is really what is post-viral syndrome? And basically, post-viral syndrome is identified when an individual experiences symptoms that last longer than three months post their acute viral infection. So these are symptoms that linger after the viral infection has cleared. And this can occur with any type of virus. However, it is more common with several different types of viruses. And that includes coronaviruses such as SARS, so severe acute respiratory syndrome, COVID-19, and also MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. There's a number of other common viruses that do tend to result in post-viral syndrome. And these are Epstein-Barr virus, Ross River virus, enteroviruses, human herpes virus 6, Ebola, West Nile virus, dengue, parvovirus, and the influenza viruses. And uh, Julianne, you and I were even talking about polio. (laughs) Not that we see that in our current (laughs) state, but yeah, there's a lot of viruses that can initiate this um, this cascade that ends up in post-viral syndrome. So really what this is, is a manifestation of the phrase that we often hear from our patients. I've never felt well since dot, dot, dot. And in this case, it's since a particular viral infection. And what we see is that the symptoms that manifest in this syndrome occur across multiple organs and multiple systems in the body and often encompass physical, cognitive, emotional, and neurological difficulties. Mm -hmm. So some of the predominant symptoms include lethargy with fatigue being one of the most frequent uh, and debilitating symptoms that it's described. Also brain fog, so cognitive impairment, Uh, There can be insomnia or non-restorative sleep. So where there's this 
sense of fatigue that persists regardless of any additional sleep the patient gets or any extra rest they get. There can also be diffuse myalgia, so muscle pain or joint pain. Uh, the patient's mental health can be impacted, so there can be a depressive mood or increased anxiety present. Swollen or painful lymph nodes could be present. Also, gastrointestinal disturbances are another uh, set of symptoms that can occur. So constipation, diarrhea, reflux, nausea, bloating, all these functional issues, negative changes to appetite can occur. There can be hair loss, uh, particularly with COVID-19, there's, there can be taste and smell dysfunction that persists. We've seen that quite a bit. There can be skin rashes, uh, fever, rhinorrhea, which is really the fancy name for a runny nose. There can be difficult or labored breathing, headaches, cardiac disturbances such as palpitations or chest pain. And a really significant symptom is often uh, post-exercise fatigue or malaise. And I know that we often do see that as a part of the presentation with our patients. Now, there's just a couple of things I want to note quickly about the risk of developing post-viral syndrome as well as the severity of post-viral syndrome. And because this is a syndrome, um, it can affect people with differing disease severity. So it, the how sort of bad, I guess it presents, uh, can be different for different people and it doesn't look the same for everyone. So that set of symptoms that I read out is, you know, you may see patients that present with some or all or just a few of these and that all is part of that encompassing post-viral syndrome. The other thing that's interesting is that when these patients have their initial acute viral infection, the symptoms of that acute infection can be very different but still lead to a post-viral syndrome, if that makes sense. So the type of acute illness doesn't necessarily correlate to the severity of the post-viral syndrome that might develop or even the risk of it developing. So clinically, what this tells us is that it's really important for us to support our patients both during any viral infection, regardless of whether it looks to be a mild presentation or if it's a bit more severe in presentation, and also afterwards during the convalescence phase. phase. And we really do specialise in this area as naturopaths because we know that we can play such a pivotal role in helping our patients to make a full recovery, to bring their immune system back into balance and really reduce their risk of developing these long-term symptoms. Um, and one other thing now for practitioners who perhaps haven't yet dealt with post-viral syndrome, but perhaps may be more familiar with other syndromes such as chronic fatigue syndrome, so CFS or myalgic encephalomyelitis, ME, you've probably noticed that these syndromes have significant crossover when it comes to the presentation as all of these conditions cause symptoms that uh, can look a bit similar. So there, there are also possible links, I guess, to initiating viruses for chronic fatigue syndrome, as well as myalgic encephalomyelitis. So research exploring this area does seem to be increasing. However, as these are syndromes, your patients may not necessarily come to you with a diagnosis that's specific to one of these. 
But because there are so many potential similarities and often the symptomatology and even some of the pathophysiology uh, crosses over, we can apply some similar therapeutic principles. So I think that's a good, you know, sort of clinical thing to note when we are seeing these patients. And Julianne, I know you've had your head in the research around the pathophysiology. So could perhaps I throw to you and you spend some time explaining to our listeners what the general pathophysiology of post-viral syndrome is and why as clinicians it is really important for us to get our head around. Well, you know I love to. You know I love to delve into this. And it is really interesting because um, any opportunity we get to, to delve into some pathophys of conditions that we see regularly is going to be a bonus and, and time well spent. But even when you're researching this, like if you were just to put in post-viral syndrome, for instance, so many different names come up for it. Um, and, and polio was interesting. That's why I spoke to you about it because it's not something we see. Well, I don't see it clinically, which is interesting, but there is a post-polio syndrome and that comes up in that same sort of category. Um, CFS comes up, ME comes up a lot in the research. So when people are looking at that, that was a bit frustrating at times, I must admit, because, but that does show how strong the correlation is between those two kinds of syndromes. And as you said, symptoms can be really similar. Um, I find them in the patients that I currently have and have had before. My CFS patients seem to be a bit more on the extreme level. And so perhaps in that way, their diagnosis is um, came a little bit more easily to um, their medical staff. And perhaps that's why we're seeing that as well. But it is, you know, that, that spectrum of syndromes and that spectrum of symptoms that fit into those syndromes is huge. And it's huge because if we stop and look about what a virus does and where it, where it impacts our body, it impacts our body on so many levels and in so many systems and in so many organs. And when I was looking at the research to go over that again, what's really interesting is that different viruses or families of viruses will impact your body or the host's body in different ways. And obviously, like bacteria, like stealth, like uh, parasites, they all have areas of the host that they adore and they want to they want to live in and they want to thrive so their infection and how they infect kind of replicates that or or shows us what sort of area of the body they want to be in um, but there are so many the general gist of the pathogenesis behind a viral infection that leads to that post-viral syndrome really does overlap you know and I think the, um, the history taking of our patients is hugely important because it will give us an idea of those systems that are deeply impacted and that need our support. Because I think once we understand that pathogenesis behind a viral infection that leads to a syndrome or a post-viral syndrome, we then can tailor those treatments you know, even if we don't know that specific virus, we'll understand the general uh, I guess, damage or dysregulation that's happening in the body and the symptoms will lead to the specificity of organ, right? So if we, if I can be general, and in my mind I have flowcharts. Kristen, you know I like to work with flowcharts, so all of my notes have got these arrows leading off. You know, I'm a mind map person, so that's where I go. <laughs> so my hands are going to be flying around everywhere as I talk to you. But if we stop and think about, okay, so a viral entry, we have an acute virus infection, and our innate immune system is triggered. And we're hoping that that innate immune response and those first line immune cells are robust enough to kind of fight and clear that virus. 
Now that happens majority of the time. Let's be honest, that happens majority of the time for most people. Um, but in certain situations and for certain people, it doesn't happen. And so what happens upon that entry is sometimes the virus can start impacting our own antiviral defences within our immune system, within our innate, and it interacts with, you know, antiviral signalling and proteins and things. So that will stop how robust or it will start to dysregulate that immune, that innate immune response. Any innate immune response is going to trigger inflammation. So we get inflammation to that area of infection or wherever that virus has travelled to. So that inflammation plus the viral virus itself will trigger some tissue damage, which will then trigger some more inflammation. And if we're looking at kind of general rules, it is that unchecked inflammatory response where our innate immune system isn't uh, switched on enough or on cue enough to kind of calm that inflammatory response, A, because perhaps it hasn't cleared the pathogen and those antiviral um, defences have been shut down or dysregulated to some extent, which triggers this chronic inflammation. It's just like this continual cycle. What we do get when we see a viral virus enter and um, enter a particular organ or tissue type and it sort of sits in that area, we do then see that destruction. And I think what's of the tissue is what I'm meaning, which is that chronic inflammation trigger again. But what happens here too is that our microbiome is greatly impacted by a viral infection. And I think sometimes we think like, you know, we were talking about coronaviruses before that, that they're basically a respiratory virus. That's what they're sort of classified as. Um, so we think of the respiratory herbs and we speak, think of the respiratory um, areas that we need to work on. But, you know, the human trials we've seen coming out from um, the SIRS and MERS pandemic that we were speaking of previously and even of recent times in animal studies with coronaviruses is that the microbiome and the microbiota are, are significantly changed upon infection. So we can't just think locally respiratory wise. We actually have to think about the whole body in a context, which as naturopaths and herbalists, we do a great job of anyway. So it's really important to understand now, if I go back to this cycle of viral infection, innate immune disruption um, and tissue destruction, the microbiome is involved in that. So when that happens and we get that slight overgrowth of, I guess, they're still commensal bacteria, but they might lend towards more pathogenic and we get that inflammatory response within the, the lining of our gastrointestinal tract, which leads to that, um, I guess, uh, I'm going I'm to say leaky gut because the term's not coming to me, Kristen. You have to tell me the term again. Increased intestinal permeability. That's the one, the permeability, the increased permeability of the gastrointestinal not like you got but anyway uh, uh, in my gut um, and what that lends to is obviously we can see some commensals that might actually infiltrate into that system into the body system and that will then set off some more innate immune activity and general adaptive and dysregulated adaptive immune activity and which can trigger in those susceptible people some autoantibodies some circulating autoantibodies so all of this if we flow down we've got viral infection tissue destruction and innate immune response, um, which is dampened a little bit by the virus, chronic inflammation that occurs due to tissue destruction, viral particles, et cetera. And then we might have some further tissue destruction within the microbiome or microbiota, which leads to that intestinal permeability, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it makes it sound like this is happening for a long time. It's actually quite a short process and quite a quick process, but all of these sorts of organs are working together. And if we stop and think about, well, what regulates inflammation and what regulates our immune system, Predominantly, it's our microbiota, you know, and our microbiome. And obviously, we have a few different 
versions of that. But this is what's something we need to really lean on and think about when we're treating our patients with post-viral syndrome. Because all of that, that autoantibody, the disruption between innate and adaptive immune talk and immune system activity, to get to the cause of that, we need to look after the tissues that have been impacted, but we also need to look after that microbiome. And say, for instance, that there is a respiratory virus that was that acute virus, then we also need to manage that gut-lung talk as well. Like, you know, there's these axes between our organs in our body, particularly with our gut, that once we can start to, start to work on supporting the microbiota, improve the integrity of the lungs and the respiratory system, we can start to dampen that immune or inflammatory response and start to regulate the talk between those systems with regards to our immune cells. <sighs> Take a breath. So it's a, it's a big system it's and it sounds like there's a lot going on but the great thing is we can actually just nail it down to a number of systems that actually need regulation and support and it makes it sound easy when I say like that because it's actually sometimes not for depending on the patient presentation and all the other roadblocks they may have in their health that kind of don't allow us to quickly or rapidly kind of do that but I think overall if we're thinking about post-viral syndrome we do see over time that we get this chronic inflammatory um, immune, sorry, inflammatory response, which actually continues to trigger this low-grade innate immune response too. And it's not only that inflammation or tissue destruction that does that, it's also the fact that some of our viruses are what we call persisting viruses. So they'll have viral reservoirs within our body that will just slowly replicate slowly shred over time and that is this low grade triggering of our immune response and you know the, the interesting thing in the research currently too is that we also have these what they call the non-persistent viruses but they're still saying that they possibly technically could be persistent because our body may not have done a great job initially of clearing that virus so there may be viral particles and proteins that remain which are still triggering that immune response so all of that low-grade triggering leads to what we call immune ageing or immune depletion, which then leads to further chronic inflammation. So it's I keep doing this cycle with my hands because in my mind that's exactly what this is. And at some point we need to come in and identify those major areas within our patient's body and systems that need regulation, dampening or integrity and support. Um, does that all make sense, Kristen? It makes total sense. It's very, um, very thorough look, and it and it does make sense to talk about this kind of thing in terms of flow charts and mind maps because one thing will influence something else, which will come back, and you know it's a positive feedback loop or it's a negative feedback loop, and the microbiome changes in postviral syndrome patients is something that we really should be aware of, have our head sort of at least in that space. And I do, I will say as well for practitioners that are listening that perhaps want to delve a little bit deeper into the topic of microbiome modulating herbal medicines, we have done a previous webinar on this topic, Julianne's done that. And also there's another podcast episode uh, that you can listen to on this topic if you wanted to get your head a little bit more around the whole um, microbiota and, and how we can actually impact it with our herbal medicines. So that's something that if somebody has a little bit more of an interest, they could go there. And even in saying that, you know, talking about um, this, 
this low-grade immune response that just continues and this inflammation, it really does speak to uh, autoimmunity as well. So, um, you know, and the autoimmune elements of post-viral syndrome have also been getting researched more and more. And we do know that viruses contribute to autoimmune diseases in a variety of ways. So again, I'm just doing a couple of throwbacks here. So if practitioners would like to delve deeper into that topic, the sort of infectious triggers of autoimmunity, we've done a webinar on that as well that you can purchase. And there's an accompanying podcast episode that does discuss infectious triggers, including viral triggers of autoimmunity in more detail. So this is kind of the summary that that really covers post-viral syndrome specifically. And then there are offshoots where you can sort of get a little bit more into it. So, no, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And, and there is a wealth of information there that we've done over the years that you can delve in into even viral um, webinars, I believe, antiviral phytomedicines that we've done a while ago. Um, so there is a lot of information there for people. But I think if we can just, you know, see that individual in front of us, identify never been well since and what that trigger was, identify the symptoms and therefore the systems that might be involved and we can do further testing work uh, in relation to that to really unearth those uh, causative factors and I think that's hugely important in people that are presenting with chronicity behind their illness. Um, And then we can start to resuscitate things like the nutrient depletion that might be there and other factors within the body that might be causative um, or foundational in their presentation. And it's really interesting in the research too, and we're just mentioning before, I mean, most of my patients, not most, maybe 50% of my patients don't necessarily know what virus they've had. It's their certain white cell count. Their doctor has said that they have a virus and that's fine. So it's more now identifying what what those symptoms are perhaps then and therefore what we actually need to treat. But it's interesting if you do know the virus, I would strongly recommend you jump on PubMed and have a little look at the pathophys behind that virus. There's some really cool research around the coronaviruses and how they can um, infect the the central nervous system primarily through entrance via the olfactory nerve and then making its way through hypothalamus, the brainstem, et cetera. And this is why we see some of those autonomic symptoms, those autonomic responses due to those where where the virus is actually infecting and living and causing hypoxia and, you know, depletion of mitochondria and inflammation, et cetera. So viruses can have a huge impact on our central nervous system and quite a few of them will impact in the central nervous system in some way. Um, and I think that's worth it. If you know it, just jump on PubMed and have a little search. I mean, we're all nerds out there, aren't we? It's not just me. <laughs> I think if they're listening to this podcast, they probably <laughs> But I, I agree. And I think that testing and blood work parameters can also really help to inform our clinical picture in a lot of ways, whether it's looking for the particular virus, like you said before, looking at the blood work, perhaps looking at a blood immune panel, um, looking at the white blood cells, the lymphocytes, the globulins, you know, inflammatory markers like um, C-reactive protein and erythrocyte sedimentation rate, And even looking at perhaps specific nutrient depletion, um, different uh, parameters, whether that be like writing or writing a letter to the GP, if they haven't come with blood work, perhaps doing that. And, you know, testing rather than guessing can sometimes give you a point to start. And then further down the track, you can use these as like goalposts to see how your interventions are helping 
your patient um, improve or whether you need to pivot a little bit with your treatment. And I think functional testing can also be something that we can look at when there are, say, roadblocks to recovery. So certain testing, I know, Julianne, you do a lot of organic acid tests, so oat tests, Mm -hmm. and these measure the levels of organic compounds in the urine that are produced in the body as part of lots of different vital biochemical pathways. And so we can do something like an oat test to perhaps look for markers of oxidative stress or mitochondrial function. Perhaps we might want to look at a stool test if we want to look at Um, increased intestinal permeability, dysbiosis or gastrointestinal co-infections. And even a hormonal profile can give us a lot of information looking at cortisol, um, rhythm, things like that. So there's a lot that we can do to to sort of um, further inform our clinical picture once we've taken a thorough case history, see where the patient is currently sitting and then use those as goalposts moving forward. And so I guess once we've established our thorough clinical assessment of our post-viral syndrome patient, obviously what we want to do is provide some interventions to help them. And I think with um, phytomedicines, some of our primary therapeutic goals we'd like to accomplish with them would include things like trying to balance that innate immune response and dampen the inflammatory burden overall. So we look at our immunomodulating herbs, our inflammation modulating or anti-inflammatory herbs. And probably, you know, we know that our phytomedicines have more than one action. They're, they're synergistic in nature and they're multifaceted in nature. So you could choose those immunomodulating herbs that perhaps have an antiviral edge, or you could choose immunomodulating herbs that perhaps have an particular affinity um, for a specific organ or tissue or system where we can see from the symptomatology there is specific damage or specific inflammation like you were talking about earlier julianne letting the symptoms sort of guide the um the the treatment and then we want to reduce the viral load clearly because we want to try and remove that consistent trigger that's that's occurring and like you said, Julianne, we can match our antivirals if we know the particular virus and we can go through the research or look through the Optimal Rx material to see what herbal medicines have some research in a particular um, for a particular virus. But if we don't know, we can go for our more broadly acting antivirals that are known to be effective against a wide variety of viruses or even, you know, viruses from uh, the same family or something like that. And I would also probably say that our lymphatic herbs, so our lymphagogs, would sit in this area as well to help eliminate those viral um, waste products. So perhaps viral particles. We want to clean the interstitial fluid of wastes to help, um, you know, remove that burden. And I think it's important to remember as well that. Um, lymphatic drainage even we know now occurs in the brain so when there's neurological symptoms uh, improving brain um, or cerebral lymphatic drainage can be really beneficial so including our lymphatics there will help reduce that viral load and um, we've got some fantastic lymphatics to choose from we also as a goal would want to support our um, areas of impact so our damaged organs our tissues and our Um, systems that have been heavily impacted and we use our organ protective our trophy restorative phytomedicines and i would probably also say that our microbiome modulators or our selectively antimicrobials could fit here as well because like you said julianne that 
you know, the microbiota is quite significantly impacted by a viral infection. So helping to balance that out will help to restore that, that um, impacted area, whether that be the, you know, the gastrointestinal microbiome or the lung microbiome or whatever you're sort of looking at. And we know that our microbiome modulators also help to balance our immune system um, as a flow-on effect as well. Um, and then I, I finally, probably looking at improving the energy and the mitochondrial health of our patients. And with fatigue being such a huge component of post-viral syndrome, we can look at our anti-fatigue herbs. They're fantastic. And especially our antioxidant and our polyphenol-rich plants to help mop up the, the mess, the oxidative damage. And I think that gives us quite a a broad and a thorough um, guide of where to start, what to look for and what herbs can be really, really beneficial for these patients. So from these kind of classes of phytomedicines, Julianne, what would you say are your favourites? What herbs do you love to use for your post-viral syndrome patients? And I know there's oh. probably going to be <laughs> a couple of shelves full. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're lucky to have um, access to really great dispensaries, aren't we, that that do cover a lot of the areas that you've flown into um, that you've discussed, sorry. But, yeah, my favourites, well, I mean, they're probably not going to rock your socks, to be honest with you. They're probably just the ones that majority of practitioners reach for, but we reach for them for very good reason. So astragalus is my number one in post-viral and it covers so many bases that you you just mentioned. So definitely it's as an immune modulator, as an antiviral, as an anti-inflammatory, and it's also a microbiome modulator. So astragalus is one of the, my staples for these patients. Um, I, I love it. And the other one I love, or other two I love, is probably cordyceps and reishi as my key, um, I guess, immunomodulators, but with an antiviral edge. This is the great thing, I think, about the medicinal mushrooms as when we've done the research on them and, you know, let me know if I'm wrong here, Kristen, but majority of the research is based around viral versus bacterial, you know, in that way. And I just think of them as antiviral phytomedicine. So you can choose your mushroom to the person. And I love that. And obviously cordyceps is one I use when I know that that person is really in that unchecked inflammatory response area um, because of its beautiful anti-inflammatory edge due to a pathogenic infection and that's our key we've given it for such a long time now but it really does stand out there and I think I tend to reach for reishi alongside astragalus when someone's a bit more chronic you know when that fatigue is really hitting them and they're that little bit more chronic than um, where I'd reach for cordyceps and just while we're talking about um, medicinal mushrooms. I think lion's mane needs its own mention here because when we know that people are presenting with central nervous system symptoms, um, whether that's cognitive, whether that's, oh gosh, tingling or any kind of headaches or anything that you know that that central nervous system is impacted, I think lion's mane is a really nice choice to go alongside something like an astragalus or even a reishi uh, to help to help with that immune modulation and anti-inflammatory, but to really, as a nootropic for the central nervous system, you can't go, you can't go past it in those chronic patients, really. Um, I will, I will say what you said before. I think I tend to reach for my broad spectrum antivirals, so bacal, you know, turmeric, licorice, astragalus, those sorts of things. Is that sort of what I reach for when I'm not sure of what that virus is, and to work on clearing it. And again, the most beautiful thing with these herbs is that they're going to be they're going to be 
immune modulating and anti-inflammatory. So, you know, they're all going to work synergistically together in that way. So I do reach for my broad spectrums. And I think sometimes turmeric can be overlooked in viral infections, particularly in um, chronic ones, in the post-viral syndrome kind of phase or area of our patients. And we think of it generally as that beautiful anti-inflammatory. It is, it is, but it's a broad-spectrum antiviral. That, and it's also a microbiome modulator. You know, it's, it ticks all the boxes. But one of the key areas that I really like for turmeric is that the constituents found within it, the curcuminoids, can actually cross the blood-brain barrier. And that is of significance when we are dealing with a patient that has certain cognitive issues or central nervous system symptoms. So I like to reach for turmeric for a lot of that reason. What about you? Oh, well, I knew this would happen, but um, they're also very much my favourites as well. And I think I'm glad that you mentioned turmeric and I I love using turmeric as a liquid extract. I really do. I think it's a fantastic um, option. And, but even if you can't fit it into a mix or, you know, you can always prescribe it alongside as, as a tablet or a capsule or use it in food and the diet as, as well. I think that's also really beneficial for me. I also really love to use licorice, um, glycerizaglabra. And, you know, I think, like you said, we've got so many to choose from. So some of those broadly acting antivirals that are also immunomodulators that are also anti-fatigue, you know, rhodiola is one of those as well. That's another favorite in this particular area. But I think sometimes I, I was telling you about a case recently, Julianne, where there were a few herbs that I really wanted to use for a patient, but I actually ended up avoiding because she was on a number of medications. And I think that that sort of speaks to why it is so beneficial to have such a broad range to choose from because every patient is going to present with their own unique set of challenges where you may not be able to use something because of a potential interaction or an allergy or even just an aversion to that particular thing or you know due to sustainability issues or whatever it is that herb might be out of stock so um I did have that recently where although I use some of my absolute favorites I did have to sort of negate a few others um, that I would normally use with a similar symptom presentation. I love that. And that um, leads us to, I want to know more about this case and see where we are. I think we can come back to some herbs, but I think this is a really interesting case that you're talking about purely because it's a patient most of us will see walk through our door. But when you do have those drug interactions and you can't give um, what you're wanting to give, I just loved what you reached out to give this patient. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? I can, I can. She was, like you said, she was quite a typical presentation in a number of ways. And this was actually a new patient for me. So uh, it was a 35-year-old female patient and she was experiencing uh, post-viral syndrome, not diagnosed, but from the symptomatology post a recent coronavirus infection. So it was three months on that she'd come to see me and she was still experiencing a number of uh, symptoms, including actually stinging and watery eyes, which this is what you and I were talking about, Julianne, from citations in the literature really makes us wonder if she perhaps had a concurrent adenovirus infection because that's something that often presents. Um, But besides the stinging and watery eyes, she had severe fatigue and brain fog. She described it as just mentally shutting down um, where she's so tired and she can't think properly. So she couldn't think of words to say she lacked a lot. She lacked motivation, which she previously hadn't. Um, and she had a lot of sleep issues. So that was trouble both getting to sleep 
and staying asleep. And of course, she was also waking up not feeling refreshed, but she really wasn't getting adequate sleep anyway. Um, she had sort of body aches all over. So, um, and she really did describe it as an ache, but specifically in the chest and in the legs, she was a little bit short of breath. And she actually had quite significant post exercise exhaustion, but was still wanting to do it regularly. She was part of a sports team and she really didn't want to give that up. She was a bit of a star player. So um, that was something that she, she wanted to maintain. And you know, she often would say that she, she'd feel really good that she could do it. You know, she'd feel really good about herself, but then just be wiped out afterwards. And so I did refer her to get some blood work because she didn't come with any. Um, but before we got results, she was initially put on two different herbal mixes. And I did that because I did really want to focus on her energy during the day and her sleep at night. So she was on a day mix and a night mix. And um, what I would normally reach for with a patient like this would have included um, perhaps licorice, rhodiola, really sort of I straight away went to put rhodiola in the mix and then did a bit of a herb drug interaction check and was like, oh, actually, I probably should avoid this. Um, I was thinking of California poppy, of bacopa, um, of a number of different herbs, and I decided to um, err on the side of caution and avoid them because this patient was on quite a few medications. So what we ended up deciding to do was in her day mix, we included American ginseng, so um, Panax quinquefolium, uh, Astragalus, obviously an amazing favorite that of both yours and mine, Julianne. Bacal skullcap, so Scutellaria bacalensis, Cordyceps militaris, uh, red root, uh, which is Cenothus americanus. So that was put in there as the lymphatic. And I really did want to help with that lymphatic drainage, you know, particularly because she did have some of these cognitive issues as well. And also we know that red root is an immunomodulator itself it you know has this amazing spleen tonic activity um, and it can also work through the liver as well and help with detoxification that way and then for her nighttime mix um, we wanted to put together a real sort of calming soothing mix that would help her get to sleep and also stay asleep but not um not sort of knock her out um, because she was a bit worried about that. She tried a lot of different sleeping tablets um, and she was on uh, benzodiazepine. So um, what we ended up giving her was magnolia, so magnolia officinalis, passionflower, passiflora incarnata, uh, pleurisy root, which is Asclepius tuberosa, and withania somnifera or um, ashwagandha, if you know it by that name. And that was given at dinner time and then again before bed. And so... What I found with these two mixes, um, it's actually probably been about six weeks, but I saw her a month later and I also gave the patient some diet and lifestyle advice and, and a few nutritionals. But after one month, she did report significant reduction in nearly all symptoms um, with the most significant improvement being her sleep, her mood and her motivation. So we were quite happy with that outcome. And she's actually going to stick on this mix um, for a little while until we will probably tweak it a bit down the track. But that we found was really helpful. And uh, probably for those practitioners out there that maybe heard pleurisy root in the nighttime mix and thought, well, why are you doing that? <laughs> you know, isn't that a lung herb? Um, I did want to support her lungs and I felt I did that with both mixes but 
um, particularly I put pleurisy root in the nighttime mix because a lot of times when I asked her, did she wake up at a regular time during the night? It was often during traditional Chinese medicine lung time. So that 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. window, she was often awake. And, um, you know, she did have a lot of that uh, shortness of breath and, and some chest pain and some lung symptoms. So we thought it would be pertinent to include that too. Mm, no, that's a wonderful inclusion. And uh, we can listen back on your podcast around those respiratory phytomedicines too, where we discussed that, because I think that was a really interesting point that we often neglect to think about um, when we're looking at people's waking up times and why that might be happening. But yeah, again, because of that specific virus that this particular patient had, we know the impact on the central nervous system, which you were seeing as symptoms, but also on the respiratory system. So you've basically chosen herbs there that cover you know, those key areas, particularly around immunomodulating, anti-inflammatory, antiviral and organ specific. So with regards to the lungs and the central nervous system. So it's um, awesome to see that that patient improves quite significantly just within that short time of a month. Now, I know that there's, you know, it takes a bit longer than that long term and we're looking at full resolution, but um, really interesting. Out of, out of just interest, what was the were there any sort of symptoms that didn't resolve themselves that you need to follow up with? Interestingly, actually, the um, the stinging watery eyes did improve, but it's still there. And um, I thought that would be the easiest thing to <laughs> kind of impact. And um, she's she's also using eye drops and it's just, it's quite, seems a little bit persistent. So, um, yeah, that kind of informed my decision a little bit with the choice of bagel skull cap as well. But yeah, we probably have to do a little bit more work around that. That was something. And uh, the other thing probably that was lingering a little bit was she would get aches, um, you know, still still a few body aches, particularly in the legs and particularly post-exercise. It's so, I find all of these cases fascinating and, and where, they, where they lead our choices for herbs. But I think, as you said before we started talking about our favourites, if we can kind of have those therapeutic goals that, that match the pathophysiology and it's not normally a quick treatment, it's not normally, you know, we're going to give you 500 ml herbal medicines and we're going to be done with that. I think, you know, taking that full case, really understanding what's happening within the biochemistry of that person's body. So those blood test results that you can get from a GP um, are really important, particularly around nutrients levels and, and how, how effective that might be for the patient and just resuscitating those levels. Now, I know we're talking herbal medicine, but I think we can't avoid talking about how important those nutrients are and a nutrient-dense diet and a lifestyle that supports rest and recuperation. Um, and as you mentioned, that exercise malaise or that post-exercise malaise is, is, look, it's in every research article around symptomatology with regards to post-viral syndrome or, or chronic fatigue syndrome or anything. So it's sort of that really encouraging the patient to understand what effective rest and recovery actually is. And the herbs are just the magic potions that really start balancing, stimulating and recuperating all the systems and organs that are actually involved while we're resuscitating those nutrient levels and implementing um, the diet and lifestyle changes as well. So I find the herbs just, you know, our herbal tool belt as naturopaths and herbalists, this is where we fit, right? This is, this is there is no competition here. This is where we fit so beautifully um, to help these people out in these sort of syndrome pictures. And I think we're going to see more and more 
as the time goes on. Yeah. Thank you for listening today, everybody. We hope that we've just improved your knowledge around what post-viral syndrome is, the pathophysiology behind it and what to look out for when you're sitting taking a case history and then just some of those herbs that we like to use. And, I mean, there's so many we didn't mention. We didn't even delve into the antioxidants and the mitochondrial antioxidants like bilberry, chaga. Here I go. I'm mentioning them now. But we have done we have done work on that before that you can reach out to OptimalRx and um, ask for those webinars and look at the podcast that we've done previously to get some information on that. So thank you for listening and we can't wait to be talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.